Father, thank you for these ladies. Thank you for their hunger to know you better through a look at your word. Thank you for Daniel, who recorded this for us. Thank you for choosing him to be your your man at that time. Um, Such a godly example to all of us. We thank you so much for him and for his faithfulness to serve you, even in troublesome times. Um, And we thank you for what you revealed to him in dreams and visions and and, uh, through... Uh, your angel Gabriel and all that we'll be looking at this morning I pray father that your Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning not me I pray that you would help me to think clearly um, to remember those things that are important for us to to know for all of us to remember back to what we've learned so far from the book of Daniel um, and that the spirit would have his will and way in every heart here as he purposes and do help these ladies to get this working i know they're frustrated lord but um if it's your will may it work for we pray these things jesus in your blessed name amen all right the second god-given vision of daniel which was recorded in chapter eight if you remember centered on two animals two animals there was a two-horned ram that had one horn raised up higher than the other and there was a unicorn he-goat Very strange, a a horn coming right out from the two eyes of a he-goat, a male rough goat later on. He's called verse 21 or a shaggy goat. Well, not only were there two main characters in that second vision of Daniel, of course, his first vision was given in chapter 7, two years earlier. But there were two major confrontations that he saw in his prophetic vision. Um, The first was a coming confrontation that would take place between the he-goat and the ram and the mighty swift victory of that angry charging goat who rammed into the ram you think it would be the other way around the ram ramming into the goat but it was the goat who butted into the ram and he utterly stomped out the life of that ram we read about that in verses six and seven That was the first confrontation of the vision. And then the second confrontation was that of a little horn, not the same little horn of chapter 7, a different little horn, who would come along and make great havoc out of the pleasant land. What was the pleasant land? Israel and the people of God, the faithful remnant of God. And we read about that in verses 9 and 10. And history has since proven the precise accuracy of the nations and the wars, the persons, and the circumstances of Daniel's visions, right? Absolute precise, 100% precise. The Greeks, the he-goat, under Alexander the Great, who was the horn, coming the notable horn out of the he-goat, did indeed very swiftly... From the west, they came out of like nowhere from the west, and they very swiftly rammed in to the Medes and Persians, the ram, and utterly defeated them. That's history. That did come to pass. Also, there was a second century B.C. confrontation between a little horn who emerged from one of the four replacement horns of the notable horn. The notable horn was Alexander the Great. When he was broken in the prime of his life, he was replaced by four other horns, four divisions of the Greek dynasty, and out of one of those came a little horn, and history has told us his name. 
His name was Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. And uh, he brazenly, egotistically, even referred to himself as Theos Epiphanes. Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, which means, here I am, folks, God manifest. That's pretty egotistical, isn't it? Clear claim to deity. Uh, and um, he did, he did make war, havoc on the land of Israel, the pleasant land, and tried to annihilate the Jewish people. Um, and he was, of course, just another one of Satan's pawns. He has had many pawns over the years that he has used to try to eliminate, annihilate the Jewish people. Still going on today. There's a whole group of people who would like to just annihilate the Jews, especially the land of Israel, the people of Israel. If it hadn't been for the courageous exploits of the Maccabees, particularly their leader, who was like a redeemer, um, and, you know, in a way, he's kind of a picture of Christ because he redeemed, he helped to redeem Israel from Antiochus, and Christ will come at the end of this, after the second abomination and the second attempt by Antichrist to annihilate the Jewish people. He'll come to rescue them. And Judas Maccabee, what was his nickname? Remember? The Hammer. Judas Maccabee, the Hammer. If it hadn't been for him and his compatriots, his, his uh, guerrilla warriors, who were far outnumbered, by the way, than, you know, the Syrian force was much bigger than they were. Uh, so it was really a miraculous, it was a God, a miraculous work of the Lord that this handful of men were able to defeat and run out the Syrians from their land. But if it hadn't been for that revolt, the Maccabean revolt, the um, Antiochus would probably have been successful in completely amalgamating the Jews, you know, Hellenizing the Jews into his pagan culture. And eliminating any who would not go along with him. He may have been successful. So we talked about, when we left last time before uh, our break for Christmas and New Year's and everything, and marriages and all that, uh, we left talking about how Christians, we have every right, really, to celebrate, celebrate Christ's Nuka, don't we? And I actually got two Hanukkah cards, Carol. One from you and one from Terry. Happy Hanukkah. It's something we should celebrate because if it hadn't been for the Maccabean revolt and the miraculous rededicating of the temple and, you know, it took them eight days to cleanse the holy place from what he had done. Remember, he slaughtered a pig and spread the juices of the pig all over the scrolls of scripture and the holy place. He set up an um, uh, image of Zeus in the Holy of Holies with his face on it and just totally abominated desecrated the temple and miraculously when they went back three years to the day that he had desecrated the temple they went back and rededicated it and that one little cruise of oil which should have only lasted one day lasted eight days so they can completely cleanse the holy of holies which is dark otherwise you need light to clean it um, all of that resulted in a holiday which is called Hanukkah Hanukkah means dedication the feast of dedication it's also called the Feast of Lights. And this past year, for the first time since 1950s, I can't remember, the was it 1959 or so? But for the first time, Hanukkah fell, the first day of Hanukkah fell on the same day we celebrate Christmas. But we should celebrate Hanukkah, Christ's Nuka. Did you do that? Any of you do that? I know Debbie Wellborn did, wherever she is, with her 
she had to leave with her children. But I explained it to my, I'm sure you did, Carol. <laughs> but I had my menorah that Carol sent me, and I explained to my grandchildren, you know, about the lights and the miracle of the lights. If it hadn't been for what happened with Hanukkah, we might not have had Christmas, right? If Antiochus had been successful in wiping out the Jewish people, of course, God would have orchestrated, all, you know, he would have reigned supreme like he always does. But um, there was a man, an anti-Semitic persecutor of Jews in Russia. You know, in, in history past, the Russians really, there was an age where they were really persecuting and killing the Jews. It was horrible. They were called the um, pogroms. And um, one anti-Semitic persecutor of Jews asked a Jewish man this question. He, he said, what would be the outcome if the wave of persecutions against the Jews was successful, if it, continue, if it was to continue? Well, this Jew very wisely answered. He said, the result, sir, will be another feast. He said, when Pharaoh tried to destroy my people, the result was the feast of Passover. Amen. When Haman attempted to destroy us, the result was the feast of Purim. Read the book of Esther. And then he said, and when Antiochus Epiphanes did his best to eliminate us, the result was the feast of Hanukkah. Isn't that marvelous? Doesn't that show us? how God will keep his promise to preserve his people. And I thought about, you know, he didn't go into Hitler, but what Hitler and Stalin, those crazies did in World War II, resulted in another holiday for Israel, for the Jewish people, right? Independence Day. <laughs> they were born again, uh, resurrected from the dead when they returned to their land on May 14th, 1948. So how true that statement is, sovereignty of God, there is the apple of his eye. <clears throat> well, in this lesson, signpost to Antichrist, we're going to cover verses 15 to 28. We looked last time, or the last two lessons, we actually looked at the first three divisions of our outline for this chapter. No, I'm sorry, the first two. We talked about the introduction of the vision and the information of the vision. Now we're going to look at the interpretation of the vision which a lot of it we've already discussed. But then we're going to also discuss the instruction given to Daniel by Gabriel, the angel, regarding the vision. And we'll finish up with verse 27, the impact that the vision had on old Daniel. So let's begin. I'm going to read verses 15 to 25, the interpretation of the vision. Starting at verse 20, uh, 15. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice. Now, this is another vo man. I heard a man's voice between the banks of Uli, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep on my face toward the ground. 
that tells us that when he fell on his face in verse 17, he fainted. He passed out. He was on his face toward the ground. But he, Gabriel, touched me and set me upright. And he said, behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. That's important to underline. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Now, here he gets into the interpretation. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And the rough goat, shaggy goat, he goat, is the king of Grecia or the kingdom. They're synonymous with one another. The kingdom of Greece. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now, that being broken, meaning the first king being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power, not having the power that the first king had. Verse 23, and in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance, And understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully, which really means horrifically, and shall prosper and practice, and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. And he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes. Who would that be? The prince of princes. Exactly, Jesus. But he shall be broken without hand. Verse 26. Oh, I'm not going to read 26. That's right. Okay, uh, go back to verse 15. We learn there that Daniel even, now remember, he's still in his vision state. He's still in his vision, but even in his vision, he's aware of what's going on, and he's very perplexed about everything that he has seen and heard in verses, uh, you know, 2 through 14. So he seeks for meaning. He sought for the meaning of everything he had just seen. He didn't have our advantage of hindsight. Um, because nothing that was in the vision had yet occurred. We have the advantage of looking back on a lot of it, don't we? Um, But he didn't have that advantage. And so he was probably mentally trying to put together this second vision with his first God-given vision two years earlier. And remember, that vision was about four beasts coming up out of the stirred-up great sea. Remember it? And those verse, those beasts corresponded with Nebuchadnezzar's image, you know, representing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, the times of the Gentiles. He, and he was probably trying to piece also together Nebuchadnezzar's dream that he had had many years earlier. He knew about it because the dream was given to him as well so that he could interpret it. But can you imagine trying to do that in your mind, piece all those things together? He, it, he, he just couldn't get it. Because it hadn't happened yet. He was still in Babylon. He didn't know anything about Medo-Persia. 
he just heard that, you know, it would be Medo-Persia, but it's very confusing. Um, and what he needed, he wanted, good thing, he wanted more enlightenment. He didn't say, oh, prophecy is just for the prophecy buffs. I don't want to know more. It sounds too scary. He wanted to know more, didn't he? But what he needed was some very intelligent assistance in this matter. So the Lord, who does not give revelation to his people in order to keep us in the dark, he doesn't do that. He wants us to seek more enlightenment, doesn't he? So many people read Revelation, they say it's too confusing, too dark. I, don't, I just put, you know, close it up instead of saying, Lord, help me understand this. He doesn't give us revelation to keep us in the dark. And he honors those who seek enlightenment. And so he sent Daniel a very intelligent interpreter. In his case, he sent him who? Gabriel, the very intelligent, mighty, glorious angel, Gabriel. Now, we have an even better situation today. Did you know that? When we seek enlightenment from difficult passages of Scripture or from prophecy that hasn't yet occurred um, or anything in the Scripture, who has he sent us? You might think, oh, man, that would have been cool to see Gabriel. You know, even if I passed out, and I probably would, <laughs> it still would be awesome to see an angel like Gabriel. Well, we have a better situation. Who do, who do, who do we have Exactly. Higher up, right? We have God, the Holy Spirit, indwelling us to enlighten us. Jesus said, on the night of his arrest, farewell discourse, he said to his disciples, the spirit of truth. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. And when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. And he will show you things to come. We have it even better than Daniel. Um, unfortunately, the main reason for the prevalent lack of knowledge in God's word today, especially in our nation, there's a lot of ignorant people when it comes to the scripture. They say things that are just off the wall. Last week, I heard a Catholic priest say that God is not perfect because he made us in his image and we're not perfect. I think he missed something about the fall, you know. Anyway, there's so many people out there that just are ignorant about the scripture. And the reason is for their lack, because of the, uh, it's a result of their lack of desire to know the scripture. I mean, you got to work to know it. You have to put on your clothes and come here to Bible study, right? And you have to have your devotional time and you have to do your homework. You know, it takes a little work. Well, just when Daniel was seeking to understand the vision, there appeared suddenly before him a figure that wasn't a man, wasn't a man, but he had taken on the appearance of a man, it says in verse 15b. Apparently then, almost si simultaneously with the sudden appearance of that figure, Daniel heard a man's voice, and the man's voice was coming from between the banks of the Uli River. Now remember we discussed there was a special word used for that river because it hadn't even been dug yet, and it was actually a man-made man canal that was over near Shushan, which wasn't even prominent yet, but that's where the spirit had carried Daniel in his vision was over there to the winter, future winter capital of the Persian Empire. And so he's by that river, Uli, and he hears a voice. And that voice likely belonged to who? Who would give command to Gabriel? God. That, that was the Lord, probably the Lord Jesus' voice. And he calls that man-like figure by his name. 
Gabriel, Gabriel, and he commands him to give Daniel understanding of the vision. Gabriel's name, any of you have sons named Gabriel? Anybody? I think we do in the other study or somebody. Mary, that's right, Mary. Um, Michael and Gabriel, yeah, she did, didn't she? She had two little cher- uh, two. well, they're not cherubs, probably archangels. But Gabriel means warrior of God or mighty one of God. And he is one of only two holy angels whose names we are given in the scripture. Who's the other one? Michael, yes. Now, there was another holy angel's name given to us, but he didn't stay holy, did he? And his name was Lucifer. Gabriel has a great privilege given to him by God. Not only did he, you know, speak here to Daniel, but when does he appear again in the New Testament? Yes. First time to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, to tell him about John's uh, conception. And then he appears, of course, to Mary to tell her the wonderful news, Virgin Mary, that she would conceive of the Holy Spirit and bear Emmanuel, God, with us. So Gabriel's very special angel. And as all holy angels do, he immediately obeyed his Lord and creator, and he came near to where Daniel was standing. And when he did, poor Daniel, (laughs) he was so frightened that says he fell down in a deep sleep, with his face on the ground. I mean, he just went smack right down on his face. Now, fainting is a very common reaction for a natural man's or woman's encounter with a being from the supernatural world. Now, what do you think we would all do if suddenly there was Gabriel right in the midst of us? Probably. Probably we would do the same thing. Smack. We'd all fall out of our chairs. I'd have the furthest fall up here, wouldn't I? <laughs> um, <clears throat> we see this with Abraham and uh, the, the children of Israel, Mount Sinai, Aaron, um, Moses, Joshua, Daniel, Ezekiel, John in uh, the book of Revelation. That is a very natural reaction. Now, here's something as I was studying this week, and this is just going to blow you away. I uh, hope you won't get mad at me, but I'm going to tell you the truth. Mormonism is a cult, is not a denomination of Christianity, it's a cult. They do not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, even though they call themselves the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. Uh, They believe that Jesus was a created being, he was the brother of Lucifer, he just merely was created being. Anyway, I found out that Mormonism teaches that the angel Gabriel actually lived a mortal life on earth. First, he was a man who lived on earth. Guess who they say he was? Does anybody know who studied Mormonism? Probably Marilyn Green would know. Anybody know? Anybody want to make a guess who he was? Who they say he was? (laughs) Somebody said that yesterday, too. That was a good guess. (laughs) No, they say he was Noah. Is that not bonkers? Noah? Noah was Gabriel. All right. I mean, that is is totally not biblical. We have Noah's genealogy. Uh, Angels don't reproduce. Angels and men are two separate kinds 
of created beings. There's no missing link between angels and man, as there's no missing link between animals and humans. It's just totally out there. But that was... And you know, angels don't ever become men. They can take on the appearance of a man, but they don't become men. And here's news, because my mother taught me this, and it was wrong, but her mother taught her. She said that when we die, we become angels. We do not become angels. We are forever glorified human beings, resurrected glorified human beings. So, again, that was free, but isn't that just wild? All right, well, after reaching forth and touching Daniel to set him back on his feet, Gabriel told him he was going to reveal matters to him that would be in the last day of the indignation. I told you, underline that, the indignation, verse 19. A study of the word indignation in Scripture reveals that the indignation refers to the period of history during which God is indignant or angry with Israel. Because of her rebellion against him, uh, him, because of her idolatry, turning to other gods, false gods. He's indignant with her because of her disobedience to him. Um, and that Hebrew word is zam. <laughs> zam, I'm angry at you. Z-A-A-M. I'm not sure of how you pronounce it. Maybe it's zam or zam. I'm not sure. But it refers to God's wrath against sin. The indignation is the time in history when God chastens Israel. And it's usually by way of the hands of Gentile powers and kings, right? It began, now I'm answering a homework question. I don't know if you have your homework sheets with you or not, but I'm going to answer a homework question, so listen up. That indignation began when the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, was conquered by the cruel Assyrians way back in the 700s B.C. That's when it began, when Assyria carried off the ten tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom. And it's going to continue through the end of the even more cruel reign of the Antichrist. The indignation will continue until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation. So when he says he's going to show him things that will take place at the last end of the indignation, this is, this is going to be the period of time when Israel is oppressed by that final stage of the Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire. You know, the ten-horned stage, which will be ruled over by that little horn, called the Antichrist. So he's telling Daniel, he's going to tell him things about the end of the indignation. So that takes us way past Antiochus, doesn't it? Even into the future from we are. The last half of the tribulation. You know, the tribulation is going to be seven years long. We're going to study that pretty soon when we get into Daniel chapter 9 where we get the seven years. But it's going to be seven years long, and the last half, the last three and a half years, Jesus called the Great Tribulation. That's when all hell breaks out on earth. That period of time begins when the Antichrist, who was prefigured by Antiochus Epiphanes, it will begin when he performs his own horrific abomination 
of desolation on the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. There's not a temple there today, is there? What sits there today on the holy Mount Zion? The Mosque of Omar. But somehow, probably through that peace agreement they make with the Antichrist, they're going to get to rebuild the temple. And uh, for three and a half years, they'll be offering sacrifices again. The Jewish people will be in the temple. But in the middle of that seven-year period, he's going to end all that. He's going to set up his own uh, image, not even the image of Zeus, but an image of himself in the Holy of Holies. He's going to kill many, many Jewish people, etc., etc. And then he'll begin his own merciless, terrible persecution of God's people. Not only the Jews, but also any people who come to Christ during the tribulation. And we read about this in Daniel 11.36. If you want to go over there, it says, And the king, Daniel 11.36, the king there is talking about the Antichrist, shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, And shall speak marvelous things, which means monstrous, blasphemous things against the God of gods. And shall, now note this, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. So, the period of God's chastening of Israel is going to continue all the way through the seven-year tribulation. And it will end only with the hammer I mean, the stone, <laughs> the smiting stone, the, the, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to end, end the whole thing. The, it will end with the second coming. So the indignation, I wonder if anybody's thinking, well, that's almost synonymous. That's almost parallel with the times of the Gentiles, isn't it? Almost. There's only one little difference. The indignation actually began when Assyria took the northern kingdom off. Not even into captivity, but just took them off. And they never returned. Um, Whereas the times of the Gentiles actually began with the Babylonian captivity, you know, the head of gold. So that's the slight difference. They're only about 150 years apart, the two. And that was an answer to a question, homework question. So now you only have eight more to answer. (laughs) So what Daniel saw in his vision concerning the little horn and his war against God and against Israel and against the faithful remnant of Israel, really was a dual fulfillment prophecy. It was not only a prophecy about the persons and the events in Jewish history that did take place during the Maccabean revolt, you know, the second century Antiochus Epiphanes and and his, his war against the Jews and then the Maccabean revolt. You know, all pictured that, yes, that's true. But that now passed historical period also serves it doubles as a prophetic warning of the yet coming last end of the indignation now this is a warning to the jewish people the nation of israel it's not really a warning to the church it is in a sense but i don't plan to be here i'm not going to be here if you want to be here that's up to you (laughs) You can avoid it by getting saved if you're not. But I do believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Um, So I don't plan to be here. But this is a warning to Israel of what's to come. And Jesus said, you know, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, hightail it out of there. Get to the hills. 
The vast amount of space. Have you wondered why did the Holy Spirit give so much space to this man named Antiochus Epiphanes? I guarantee if you go out in the world and you ask somebody, just random, okay? Just pick somebody out there. Not in your church, somebody else. (laughs) You don't want to embarrass the people in your church. But ask them, do you know who Antiochus IV of the Seleucid dynasty of the Greek Empire was? And they go, I don't think so. (laughs) And I don't really care, they'd probably say. (laughs) So, So why does the Holy Spirit give so much space to this guy? Well, the reason is, is because he is one of the foremost types Pictures in advance of the coming Antichrist. The verses that predicted him in chapter 8 not only described his evil character, his ego and everything you know about him and his anti-God activities, but they actually jump across the centuries to also describe the evil person and ego and anti-God activities of the yet coming Antichrist, whatever his name will be. We don't know his name yet, do we? We don't know. We just know it will add up to 666. Yes, it is hot in here, isn't it? Woo! Well, notice uh, Gabriel's words at the end of verse 19, where he says, For at the time appointed the end shall be. Notice that word, appointed. What does that tell us? That tells us that history is not merely whim or chance. God has sovereignly determined the time when his indignation against his people will end. He's determined when she will be chastened. He has determined how she will be chastened. And he has determined how long she will be chastened by him. You get it? He predetermined it. At that time has been appointed. History is precise. And it's predetermined. It's sovereignly calculated and appointed by whom? By who? By by the omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent God himself. Well, having dispensed with all of his introductory remarks about when these things of Daniel's vision will take place, then Gabriel begins to interpret the specific parts of the vision. And he begins, and this is no news to us really, in verse 20, he begins by giving the identity of the ram. Now, this was news to Daniel, okay? It's not news to us because we've been talking about it, and we can look back in history. But Gabriel, for the first time, tells Daniel that the ram, and if he was figuring in his mind, this would also tell him, that the um, breast of silver and the arms were also going to be the same thing. And what was the second animal? I can't think. In the seven, there was the winged lion. And what was this? The bear. Yeah, the bear. The bear. The lopsided bear. This would tell him that the lopsided bear, because Persia was stronger, you know, and the horn of the ram, Persia was stronger than media. Um, If he could put all this together in his mind... This would tell him that all those things pictured the uh, yet future Medo-Persian Empire. Now, at that time, when Daniel got all these, well, this vision in particular, it was the third year of a 14-year reign of King Belshazzar of Babylon. So this meant that it would be yet another 11 years 
before Ugbaru, remember him? Ugbaru, a.k.a., also known as Darius the Mede, would sneak into Babylon on the dried-up Euphrates River and conquer the Babylonian Empire in just one night with hardly any bloodshed. One of the few people that got killed that night was the arrogant King Belshazzar. It was the night of the handwriting on the wall. But when Daniel got this vision and this interpretation, Medo-Persia was not really a big factor on the world scene. Well, then Gabriel gives the identity of the rough goat, he calls it. Your Bible might say the shaggy goat, the he-goat that was mentioned back in verses 5 to 8, who came speedily out of the West and utterly devastated the ram. That goat, he says, represents Greece, which was at that time, nobody would have thought of those feuding Greek city-states ever becoming anything important on the world scene because those Greeks couldn't even get along with each other, much less uniting and then taking over a lot of the known world at that time. So that was way off in the future, but he tells them, no, that's the he-goat is Greece, and uh, the single horn of the he-goat, which waxed very great but was suddenly broken at the apex of his career, was the first king. And Alexander the Great was the first king of the United Greek Empire. His father, Philip II of Macedonia, was not the first king of the United Greek Empire. He was just the first, he was a king of Macedonia. But his son was able to unite all the feuding Greek city-states and become the first king. So it's absolutely accurate here. Well, in verse 22, Gabriel tells Daniel that the four horns that replace that broken single horn of the he-goat represent four divisions that would develop in the Greek empire after the sudden death of its first king, Alexander. And we've discussed how this was so literally fulfilled in history because after the early death of Alexander, he was only how old? 33 years old, just like the Lord. That's what makes it easy to remember. 33 years of age. When he died, there followed several years of struggle between his generals. He had a lot, but eventually the generals came down to five men. And then right at the last minute, one of them was done away with. And so they're just like prophecy said, there were four generals who took the place of Alexander. And... um, But just as it says in verse 22, not in his power. None of them ever had the power that Alexander did. So all this really came to pass. Totally came to pass, just like it was uh, predicted. That's why the skeptics have to try to move up the date. They say, God couldn't have known all this. Yes, he could. He's God. (laughs) And he is perfect. (laughs) Well, in Daniel's actual, now you go back to think about his actual vision. If you look at verse 9. It had been at this point in his, the chronology of what he was seeing that a little horn was seen to arise from one of the four horns. Okay? Go, go look at the end of verse 9. You'll see that. And as we said, history has identified that little horn to be Antiochus IV of the Seleucid division of the once united Greek Empire. And as predicted, in an attempt to expand his Seleucid dynasty, he did press toward the south. He tried to conquer Egypt. That's when he was really humiliated 
by that Roman diplomat who drew the line in the sand, that circle, remember that story? But he did try to press toward the south, toward Egypt. He did press toward the east and conquer Babylon and Persia. And then he did press toward the pleasant land of Israel. And he did wax great in his own deceived mind to the extent that he even challenged the God of Israel, the prince of the host, by making war against the Jewish people, taking away the daily sacrifice in the temple, desecrating the holy sanctuary, and even casting down the truth to the ground. Remember, he, he um, not only put the blood and the, the pig juices on the holy place, but right on the holy scriptures, and that wasn't enough to desecrate the scriptures, but then he had it torn up in pieces and then even burned it. So just like it said back in verses 10 to 12, he cast the truth to the ground. Um, and, and that was in the vision. But in his interpretation, Gabriel doesn't make any mention of that little horn. Rather, he jumps to speak about a latter period of time when the transgressors are come to the full, look at verse 23, to talk about a king of fierce countenance who understands dark sentences. So when we consider, um, and it also says that he would stand up against the prince of princes, who you've already told me, you know that that's Jesus, And he'll be broken, he'll die without human hands, all right? So when we consider what Gabriel said about the vision events dealing with the last end of the indignation, that phrase would not make sense at all if the prophecies all ended with Antiochus, which is what a lot of people who take prophecy and just say it's all past, the historical approach, they say it has nothing to do with the future. This was all fulfilled with Antiochus Epiphanes. That wouldn't make sense because we've already said the last end of the indignation is the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Nor uh, was the time of Antiochus a time when the transgressors had reached their full measure which I'm going to discuss in a minute. And another thing is that Antiochus's reign was not in the latter time of their kingdom. If you look at verse 23, that's what it says, in the latter time of their kingdom, which has to refer to the latter time of the four divisions of the Greek empire. He died a hundred years before the latter time of the Greek empire. And when you get your email lesson later today, I explain that a little bit better, Um, but not now, okay? All right, so Gabriel's words about the ruler understanding dark sentences suggests that he's going to, whoever this king of fierce countenance is going to be, he's going to understand deep mysteries. Now, the Hebrew word that is used for dark sentences means riddles mysteries, parables. And actually, the scripture itself uses that word when it speaks about some of its own very puzzling passages, deep mysteries. Are there passages in the scripture 
that we can't quite figure out that belong only to God, that he understands that one day we will? Yes. So this could mean, could mean that this king of fierce countenance is going to be an expert at putting together the mysterious prophetic parts of the scripture, which would definitely eliminate all this being fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, because that man was utterly ignorant of the Hebrew scriptures. He knew nothing about the Old Testament, much less the New. However, the Satan-possessed Antichrist will have great knowledge and comprehension of God's program for the future as laid out in scripture. Has Satan had a long time to study this book? Oh, yes, he is much more knowledgeable than any of us on this book. And he believes it. The only part of it that he has deceived himself about is that it isn't going to end with his own doom. (laughs) He's deceived himself to somehow thinking he's going to persuade all of the people of this earth, and he gets a bunch of them, but that together with his demonic realm, he's going to be able to defeat the returning Christ. And he's totally deceived in that, isn't he? Because he is just a created being created by the one who's going to return. Well, so it appears that in verses 23 to 25 of his interpretation, it appears that Gabriel jumped the ages. He's talking about, you know, the ram, Greece and and Medo-Persia. And then suddenly he just jumps the ages to speak about the person and the reign of of the Antichrist, of whom Antiochus was a significant foreshadow. Well, what are some of the predictions that Gabriel reveals about this last king, this fierce king of the Gentiles, this last king of the indignation, and this last king of the times of the Gentiles? What does he tell us? What did he tell Daniel? Well, he says he will appear when the transgressors are come to the full. In other words, Israel's transgressions will have reached full measure. Full measure. When her disobedience and her rebellion have peaked, God will have had enough. That'll be it. And he will allow the worst Gentile ruler they have ever known to oppress them and persecute them. And when do you think that, or what do you think it will be that will be that straw that broke the camel's back, her rebellion against him and against his Christ. I believe, no, they won't do that. I believe it will be when they sign that covenant, that peace agreement with the Antichrist, trusting and hoping in him kind of as a false Messiah when they rejected the true Christ. I think that'll be it. And he'll turn them over to the reign of the Antichrist, who does begin his reign at the beginning of that time. Um, It says this king will have a fierce countenance. What does that mean? Well, that means that his face and his person will be strong and insolent and arrogant and defiant and stern and vehement. I mean, just fierce. (laughs) Not at first. You know, he's going to come in first with peace and charm and charisma and all that but a man's face generally conveys what's in his heart right 
So that's going to come out sooner or later. And he is going to be one to be greatly feared. He's going to intimidate men of all walks of life, even other kings, leaders. He's going to understand dark sentences. Besides what I said about possibly being able to figure out a lot of the scripture, this also could mean that he's going to be, and we know from other passages, he'll be skilled in intrigue because the knowledge of Satan is at his disposal. He's going to be um, crafty. He's going to be uh, in touch with the demonic world, right? And the occult. And because of this, he's going to be able to seemingly solve unsolvable, humanly speaking, world problems. Do we have a lot of seemingly unsolvable world problems today? Just in the Middle East alone? Yes. Um, And so men will worship him as God because he'll be seemingly able to bring peace to the Middle East with this false covenant of his, which he has no intention of keeping. His power will be mighty, verse 24, but not by his own power. Who gives him his power, this man, this Antichrist? Satan, we know that. It says in Revelation 13, too, the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. Who's the dragon? Satan. He will be energized and enlightened by Satan himself. He will be able to destroy to an extraordinary degree. Verse 24 says he shall destroy wonderfully. That's not the word I would have used. (laughs) Terribly. He will destroy the mighty. It says the mighty and the holy people. He will be a master of destruction. I I mean, billions of people are going to die in the tribulation. He will destroy people everywhere. He'll destroy the secularly powerful of this world. Like, remember, three of the ten kings? Something happens to them. He's going to destroy the secularly powerful politicians, uh, CEOs of big companies. You know, it doesn't matter. He's not going to discriminate. He'll destroy them, the mighty people, and the holy people. That would be the Jewish people and the Christians. John Phillips in his commentary said this. He said, when Satan tempted Christ, which, of course, we know he did in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, He offered him the kingdoms and the power and the glory if he would fall down and worship him, right? And Satan had every right to offer him that because he is currently the god of this world, small g, the prince of the power of the air. You know, he's he's got that. He stole dominion from Adam. So when he offered that to Christ, what happened? He says, what the Lord Jesus instantly refused, the Antichrist will promptly accept. Satan will be his mentor. He will be the source of his diabolical cleverness and cunning and the one who gives him the power to work miracles and to have authority to rule the world. There's going to be some strange miracles performed by the Antichrist, right? Occult miracles, deceptive miracles. He's going to be a master of deception. Verse 25 says he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand. He's going to destroy many people by way of his treacherous deceit. Satan is the author of lies and deception, isn't he? And murder. He's going to be brilliantly scheming, crafty as a serpent. (laughs) 
And he's going to go largely undetected by the masses of people as the fraud that he is. The, the people are going to be so deceived. And that, that just saddens my heart to think how easily people are deceived today. But it's going to be worse in the tribulation without, you know, the church and the Holy Spirit. They're going to be so easily deceived by this fraud, this phony, this pretend Christ. And they're going to worship him. And all he cares about is sending their souls to hell. Horrible. Um, and we know that he's going to come by peace to destroy many. His, de- his deceptions are going to include that false peace covenant that he'll confirm with Israel that promise is her, he's going to promise her his unfailing protection and love and concern. And she's going to be deceived. Um, and he has no intention of keeping it, and he will not keep that covenant. His rise to power will be through peaceful deception, and that's pictured for us in uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, Revelation chapter 6, those four horsemen come riding in at the beginning of the tribulation, and the rider of the first horse, what color is the horse? White. That means he's coming in to conquer. A lot of people miss understand think that's christ no he doesn't come riding in at the beginning of the tribulation he's on the white horse at the end of the tribulation revelation 19 the one who comes riding in on the white horse in chapter 6 is the antichrist but he comes in to conquer through peace because he has a bow but no arrows so he's coming in peace no arrows It says, uh, Gabriel says in verse 25, he's going to magnify himself in his heart. He's going to be so egocentric and self-exalting that he's going to dare to put himself up against the prince of princes. Now, that couldn't be Antiochus because he had no knowledge of Christ. The Jewish people, I mean, they knew a Christ was coming, the Christ was coming. but, uh, But the Antichrist will know who he's setting himself up against. Jesus Christ, the Prince of Princes. Um, And then in his final prophetic statement about this last king, this king of fierce countenance, uh, Gabriel tells Daniel how he's going to die, his destruction. He would be broken without hand. In other words, his death will come by way of unhuman means. He will not die by somebody suffocating him with a pillow he won't die by a a knife being thrust into his heart you know through a human hand he's going to (laughs) die this is kind of funny play on words but he's going to die without human hands by the stone that was cut out without human hands remember the returning smiting stone jesus christ when he comes and demolishes the entire statue of the times of the Gentiles, ends the time of the indignation, and uh, saves Israel, the hammer, the stone, whatever, you know. Um, How is he going to destroy the Antichrist and the false prophet? Just the sword of the word, the powerful word of his mouth. He won't have to use his forever pierced, glorified human hands at all he just speaks the word i don't know what word it'll be what word do you think die <laughs> and the, and that that'll be the end of that antichrist and the false prophet and all those who want to annihilate his people 
Well, in the next verse, he goes on to tell Daniel um, that the vision would not immediately be understandable. Even with this interpretation, Daniel's not going to figure it all out. And then he gives the old prophet some instructions on how to handle what he had received. So let's look real quickly at the instruction regarding the vision, verse 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning, which was told, is true. This is Gabriel still speaking, is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. In other words, it's going to be many days before this all comes to fulfillment. All right, the vision Gabriel told Daniel, the first thing he tells him after giving him the interpretation is that it is what? False? True. This is true. Everything he had seen and everything that had been told to him was authentic, God-given prophecy that was absolutely true and it absolutely would come to fulfillment. However, those prophecies would not be fulfilled for many days. It would be actually another approximately 376 years from the time Daniel got this vision until Antiochus Epiphanes would come on the stage of world history. And the man he so closely foreshadowed some 2,600 years ago when Daniel got this vision, has still not come on the scene, has he? The Antichrist has still has not come on the scene. So when he said, not for many days, he meant that, not for many days. So Gabriel told Daniel to shut up the vision. Um, and when he says that, he doesn't mean, you know, keep it a secret. Don't tell anybody. Don't write it. Of course, he was to... What it includes, if you look at the actual Hebrew, he was to make a complete written report of what he had seen and heard and learned, which, of course, the Holy Spirit inspired him to do, so we know it's absolutely accurate. But then he was, in doing that, he was shutting it up. He was preserving it. He was preserving and protecting it uh, because his, the prophecies would be a long time in being completely fulfilled. When the events and the persons predicted were fulfilled, as many indeed now have been in history past, um, everyone would know, or everyone except the skeptics would know, that God is indeed God, that he does know the end from the beginning, and he can tell the future. Of course he can. So the words of instruction don't mean that he was to keep the vision a secret. If that was what it was meant, then he disobeyed, didn't he? Because we're talking about it today. It's not a secret. We have it right in front of us. But he was to preserve it as the truth that it is. And, he, and basically he's saying, God's people in the last days will understand. And we have a lot greater understanding than Daniel did, didn't, don't we? Well, the impact of the vision, verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted. Poor guy fainted again. And was sick certain days. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business. I love that. And I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Well, what was Daniel's reaction to all this? He was exhausted. I mean, he is up there in age. He's exhausted, and he faints again, and he's sick. He gets sick over this. He's sick for, for days. He had just received an amazing terrifying look into the future 
And he witnessed events that promised his fellow Jews persecution and affliction more awful than anything they had ever experienced. And when he thinks back, oh, my people were in Egypt as slaves. You know, that was awful. And now we're captives in Babylon in a pagan culture. And this is awful. And yet he gets this vision that that's nothing, Daniel. It's going to get worse. And it get worse and worse and worse, and it's going to be for a long, long time to come. So that would make you sick too, wouldn't it? To hear that about America, your your country, you love the people you love. So it took an emo- it was a, it had an emotional toll on him. And then even after he felt better, after a few days, he was still astonished at the vision, and he was unable to find any human being who could give him any further explanation of it. He says. Um, um, but none understood it. So he shared this with others. He probably shared it with Ezekiel, wouldn't you think? Ezekiel was in a contemporary, and Ezekiel would scratch his head too and say, I, don't, I just can't put all the pieces together. As I said, you and I understand the vision better than either Daniel or Ezekiel did because we now have the past 2,600 years of history to help us, and guess what? We have another advantage, a great advantage. We have the complete Old Testament, and what else? the New Testament, including the wonderful book of Revelation, that really gives us a lot of light on Daniel. Why was Daniel to take this vision and record it for future generations if, like many say, prophecy isn't important? Um, It's just academic, and it's just for those people who like to get a thrill in studying it, you know. And why was he told to preserve it? If prophecy is too difficult and too confusing, even for believers, then why did God even bother to put all this in his eternal word? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because prophecy is not merely academic. Prophecy is also very practical for our daily living. It is. The, uh, um, the first practical, there's three, I'm going to give you three real quick practical values of prophecy. The first is that it moves believers to godly living. Daniel fainted and he was sick with exhaustion, but He got up after that because he knew he had work to do. He had a life of holiness to live before others, to be a testimony before others. So what did he do after he got better, felt better? What did he do? What's the first thing he did? He went back to doing the king's business. And I love that because, wow, with everything, he is really our example. Do you remember who his king was? Belshazzar. This is the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, do you remember the night of the finger writing on the wall? Belshazzar didn't even know who Daniel was. The queen had to remind him about Daniel. And even when Daniel walked into that room, he says, art thou Daniel? Because he didn't know him. He didn't recognize him. But did that fate, I mean... He was serving an ungrateful, arrogant, uncaring king, and yet he went back to doing the king's business. He had just (laughs) received visions directly from God and had met and talked with the angel Gabriel. But the old guy doesn't put himself on a pedestal and say, oh, I must be special. You know, go out to the Jewish people and say, I am special. You know what? I got direct revelation from Gabriel. He goes back to doing the mundane work, 
for somebody who doesn't even appreciate them. Do you sometimes feel you're not very appreciated? Do children always really appreciate everything you do for them? (laughs) You got that one right. (laughs) But Daniel knew he was to occupy till he comes. You know, he was to redeem his time wisely. And really, guess what? He was doing the king's business, wasn't he? So prophecy should move us to godly living because we know who we're serving. Secondly, a second practical value of, of knowing prophecy is the peace that it brings. The one who studies and believes biblical prophecy is the person who's not irrationally and overly disturbed by the circumstances of this world which is in great turmoil. The prophecy, st- sees, prophecy student sees the alignment of the nations that are going on today. The prophecy student sees the, uh, um, the events of instability in the Middle East and uh, Russia's growing aggression and Iran and the Islamic threat of global jihadism and the caliphate and all that. Uh, The prophecy student sees the growth growth of apostasy in Christendom and the worldwide economic woes and the progressives push toward globalism because there will be, that will be successful. There will be a one world globalism in the end time. The prophecy student sees all those things in light of God's overall redemptive plan for this earth and for his people. Um, So when all these things start to take place, especially during the tribulation, it says that those who don't know God's word, don't know prophecy, don't care to know it, uh, mock it, that their hearts are going to begin to fail them for fear. They're going to be people dying of heart attacks all over the world when all these things start to happen. But the, the believer doesn't have to have heart failure, do we? Even those who come to Christ in the tribulation won't have to have heart failure because they can count, tick off the days. And after seven years, they'll know that their Lord is coming and their redemption draweth nigh. So knowing prophecy should bring us peace. Does it give you peace? Because you know how it's going to end. We don't lose to the Antichrist and Satan. The third value is the assurance that we gain in the authenticity of the author of this book. Prophecy tells us that God is God. He knows how it all ends. He predetermined it. He appointed the times for everything. He's in control. He's sovereign. And we know that this book is his book. And that is very important to know, isn't it? Very important to know that this is a God-breathed book because this is the only book in existence that tells a man, a woman, or a child how they can live eternally in his presence. This is it. This is the one way to salvation. Is that narrow? Yes. Is truth narrow? Yes. Two plus two is only four. There is only one way to eternal salvation, and Jesus told us who it is. That way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father as much as he's deceived by other means. No man cometh to the Father but by me. That is true, and you should believe it. Amen. Amen. And if you don't, it's your choice, but you will spend eternity apart from him. And he is light, and he is truth, and he is love, and you don't want to be apart from that forever and ever, do you? All right. Ah, It's right on the button. How about that? Father, thank you for your people. Thank you for their hunger to know you. 
um, help us to respond to what we've learned this morning from this revelation from you through Daniel's vision properly to be doers of the word, not just hearers only. We know that in the centuries that have followed this vision, you have certainly borne witness to the truth of much of it. So we know that that which has to do with the yet future events is going to also occur just as you predicted. So help us, Lord, each and every one of us to get busy carrying on the king's business. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.